Isaiah chapter 40, I'll read from verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished For an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings them out host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my sight is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Amen. Now, there are some many things we could say from a wonderful chapter of God's Word like this. Let me just highlight four. First, the overall point of the chapter, a message of comfort for God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. When Isaiah's prophecy was written, the people of God were far from comfortable. They were in exile in Babylon as a consequence of their sinfulness. Thirty-nine chapters in Isaiah of judgment. Judgment on the people of God, the culmination of which, chapter 39, is exile into Babylon, Jerusalem, and the temple in rule. All is lost. Darkness has fallen over the people of God. And then into the long night of exile, into the darkest of dark nights, the voice of God, the voice of hope, the voice of comfort speaks. Comfort, comfort, my people. And the rest of the prophecy addressed to the faithful remnant is a message of comfort, of hope that God would one day again bring restoration. Notice God doesn't say too much about how long it will be till he does. I wonder if God told us the consequences of actions and decisions, if we would ever take them. The future is his, but the promise to them is a restored community, the revival of his name, the end of exile, and the glory of God. When? When is the prophecy fulfilled? Well, in part, when the exile comes to an end, 70 years later. But that partial fulfillment is but a shadow. It's but a pointer to the time when the everlasting kingdom of God would break into the world in the person of the Son of God, Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us in Jesus. And when God is with us, Emmanuel, in Jesus, there comes with Jesus the everlasting kingdom of God. Emmanuel encompasses not only the person of Jesus, but his kingdom. And so a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway. Every valley shall be lifted up. The cry of John the Baptist heralding the arrival of Jesus, the everlasting kingdom of God breaking into the world. That is how this prophecy was fulfilled with his birth. 
a message of comfort for God's people then and still. And yet there is a fulfillment of this prophecy that is still yet to come. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into this world. But the kingdom of God has not yet come in all its finality and its fullness. That is still to come when the Lord Jesus comes again and there is a new creation and a new heavens and a new earth when the kingdom of God will become the kingdom of this world. And until that day, and God knows alone when it is, but it will come. Because Christ has come. Last night with the children, we were trying to inject a note of this kind of stuff into all the rest of the stuff that was going on. We got the kids down at bedtime. And William, our youngest, said, Daddy, I need to go to sleep. It's the first time he said that in eight years. (laughs) And Sally turned to me and he said, what is it for you? This is to me. That makes Christmas such a special thing. And I said, it proves to me that it's all true. That the gospel is true. And Jesus came and he will come again. But until that day, the people of God wait. And the people of God wait. And as they wait, they experience the blessing of God. And as the people of God wait, they experience the judgment of God. The judgment of God when we lose our way, when we lose our edge. And so our experience as the people of God can be very like those in exile in Babylon. A time of purifying, of rendering, days of small things to the faithful remnant living in difficult days. The message of Isaiah cuts like a shaft of light into the gloom. Just listen to God. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Now, what is it that the people of God hold on to in difficult times? What is their anchor? What is the solid ground on which they stand or fall. The Word of God that stands forever. Isn't it striking in Isaiah's prophecy of hope and comfort? The first thing he says after sounding the note of comfort is hold on to the everlasting Word of God. That's striking. A voice says, cry, verse 6, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flowers of the field. What is striking when you walk out your front door on Christmas morning, which is all about life in Jesus, all the flowers and the trees and the leaves are dead. What a vivid picture that is of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6. And seven, all of that dies. But the living word is alive. And the word of God spoken and written will never fade away and will stand forever. 
And so what is the constant reference, the constant guide for the people of God as to how they should live? The Word of God, which will stand forever, the enduring and timeless Word of God. In his first letter, Peter quotes from these verses in Isaiah when he talks about the abiding and living Word of God, the power of God for salvation. And Peter means all of Scripture, our reference, our guide, our security, our light, our rule of faith and life. And God says to us, as he did to them, do not abandon my word. For to abandon my word is to abandon me. To abandon my word is to abandon the life-giving, converting, transforming, spirit-anointed power of my speech. And if 2015 sees in our nation, and in the church in our nation, the public abandonment of the Word of God, what will we do? Despair? Or will we listen? Comfort my people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but my Word will stand forever. I wonder, thirdly, if the people of God in exile in Babylon, when a preacher says, I wonder, it means he thought they they did. (laughs) Of course they did. Of course they wondered if God was really powerful enough to turn things around, to restore the honor, the glory of his name. I wondered if the best of them, Daniel and his friends, the faithful remnant living and witnessing in Babylon, I wondered if the best of them ever wondered, of course they wondered day in, day out, or questioned or doubted that God was strong enough. After all, the temple was in ruins. The walls were down. They were in exile. The great powers of secularism in the ancient world were on the throne. I wonder if they wondered if God was mighty enough to restore the honor of his name. I wonder if we wonder often too. Really. Now, God knows we doubt his faithfulness. He knows our frailty and our weakness. He knows we make assessments of how things are and how things will turn out from a human perspective and in human categories. God knows that left to our own devices, the people of God would throw in the towel and be all gloom and doom. And so he inspires his prophet Isaiah, not only to say to us, hold on to the word of God, but to give us this marvelous vision of the glory of God. Listen to me, says your God. Listen and look, verse 9, behold your God. And the chapter is a wonderful explanation of the awesome greatness of God. It is punctuated with questions. Verse 12, who has measured the waters? Verse 13, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? As if we could contain the Spirit of the living God in a bottle. Verse 14, who did he consult? Verse 18, to whom then will you liken him? And verse 21 is wonderful. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you? Have you not understood? It's almost as if verse 21 is tucked in here in case there's somebody hearing this 
for the very first time. It's almost as if the Spirit of God is saying to this room, didn't you know? Has no one ever told you that from the very foundations of the earth, God rules? Behold your God in his awesome greatness. Let me highlight a couple of details. Verses 12 to 17 make the point that God's power in creation is sustaining life on earth is beyond human measurement. Verse 12 makes reference to four human measures. Uh, the, the, just take a hold of your hand, the hollow of your hand. How much, how much water can you hold in the hollow of your hand? God can hold an ocean, metaphorically, in his sovereignty. The span from thumb to little finger, or a small basket, or a pair of scales. To God, they hold the oceans, the heavens, the earth, the mountains, and the hills. It is meant to blow our minds, to force us to stop and think about the sheer incomprehensibility of the vastness and the power of God. And then verses 18 to 24 indicate that God is beyond all our human comparisons. What futility there is in trusting in idols. And by idols, Isaiah means anything other than the one true and living God. The wonderful verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Our son loves books of facts. We did awfully well to get him a new facts about the universe book. You know when you read these books, what they tell you is how many stars there are, how many galaxies there are, what the distances are between them. It doesn't tell you who made them. Because it can't. God says, the best of your knowledge will tell you how many there are. And you might even event in the 21st century a telescope big enough to see them. But when you look at them, I want you to remember that I made them and I hold them. I hold them, as it were, between my thumb and my little finger. Such is my awesome greatness. So do you trust in his ability to turn things around, to restore the honor, the glory of his name, to render a distinctive people and witness once again in our day? Do you trust in his ability to bring light out of darkness, to turn the long night into a dawn? Do you trust him for better days? Let me swing that question around another way. How great is your God? Does your vision of the greatness of God equate with the greatness of God in the Bible? If we grasp the awesome greatness of God, 
if we grasp the awesome greatness of God, then we will come to see and believe that faithfulness to God, whatever the costs and consequences, whatever the road, we will come to see, if we grasp the greatness of God, that faithfulness will never, ever see the people of God falter. They cannot. They will not. Only unfaithfulness will lead to walking on a path that is a different path from the greatness of God. That is profoundly encouraging, I hope, to us as churches. Faithfulness will never, ever cause you to falter in the end. A message of comfort. The Word of God stands forever. The awesome greatness of God. Last question, but does God really care for me? All this stuff about the greatness and power of God over the nations, over the earth, over the stars, the God who can restore the glory of His name, we get all of that. We believe in all of that. But does God really care for just little me? With all that I have to face in this coming year and in the rest of my days on this earth, Emmanuel, God with us, in its fundamental sense, means God with you. God with me, Jesus Christ, born into this world to reconcile humanity That means you and me and boys and girls to God. The Lord Jesus is your shepherd king. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Are you like a lost sheep? Have you strayed away from the Lord Jesus? Well, call the shepherd. Call the shepherd, and he'll find you. You fearful. We'll let the shepherd guard you. Or are you weary without energy left to persevere? Why do you say, verse 27 of Jacob, my way is hidden from the Lord? Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God? He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. What a marvelous footnote to a chapter, which is the summit in the Bible 
as a chapter on the awesome greatness of God. Surely the chapter should end, Behold your God. But how does it end? I will not let you faint. Even you youngsters and you oldies, they will walk and not be faint. The tender care of God. That's what it means to know Jesus personally, to walk another day, to keep on going safe and secure in him. And maybe in our lifetimes, we will see the glory of God again. Maybe we will see the restoration of his name, maybe. But one thing is certain. At the end of days, when the Lord Jesus comes again, we will see him face to face. And this glorious prophecy will be finally and fully fulfilled. And so in light of that, what can we sing? O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come, let us adore him.